Hey, this is Jen. Before we get started with today's show, I have a quick ask of you. If the show has helped you in any way, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review the show. Let us know what you think. Let us know what's helped you. Let us know what you want more of, what you want less of. But just take a couple minutes to do that. It would mean a ton to me and it'll help us get better and better in the future. I really do want to hear from you. We talk a lot about mental health on the Work Well podcast because I believe it's time to move beyond mental health awareness. We are all aware. Instead, let's all strive to become mental health literate about what it means to have mental health, what it means to have mental ill health, and why it's particularly important in the workplace. And one of the best ways to do this is by sharing our own stories. Because let's be honest, mental illness affects all of us, whether it's you, someone you love, or someone you work with. We can't continue to turn a blind eye to the very real needs of those that way too often suffer in silence and alone. When leaders and influencers are open and honest about their own mental health challenges, it creates a safe space for everyone to speak up and seek the help that they need. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Rob Stevenson, a mental health influencer, speaker, and founder of Inside Out, a social enterprise focused on ending the stigma of mental health in the workplace and promoting best practices for managing mental well-being. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, Jen. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. So I want to start and I want our I want our audience to know, like, tell me about Rob. You know, who are you? What's your journey? How did you become passionate about mental health? Um, tell us all the details. Oh, thank you. It'd be my pleasure. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm many things like all of us. There's no one thing that define us, but I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a, a son, I'm a cyclist, I'm a DJ, and I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm a campaigner, but I'm also bipolar. I experience bipolar disorder, which, as you know, is a mental illness. And it is a mental illness that's characterized by extremes of mood from dark depression, where I cannot get out of bed at times and do my job or look after my children, through to periods of mania where I can believe that I'm always right, take risks and make bad financial decisions. Um, but my story and my journey comes from that challenge, really. And when I was 30, I was diagnosed with this condition. I'm 48 now. And over the next 15 years, I learned to kind of manage it proactively, but also with the help of therapy and medication and a lot of other things. But I did so under the radar with just close friends and family knowing about it mm. because of the stigma of mental illness. And I, I didn't think anything of it, but in the UK in, in 2017, we something amazing happened was that Prince Harry spoke mm. out about seeing a therapist. And this really put mental health on the agenda here in the UK. And I just thought, Jen, why am I hiding this? Why am I putting physiotherapy in my diary every time I go and see a therapist when I've got a team around me that I love and respect? And, you know, my team must have thought, I've got the worst physiotherapist in the world that cannot fix this back injury, right? And yet I'm coming in telling stories of 100-mile bike rides. Um, so I decided to share my story, which I did in a really awkward Facebook post. 
but it was that post that changed my life because I got, as you'd expect, people reaching out and checking in and seeing if I was okay. But I also got a lot of people sharing their story back because I'd kind of given people permission to do so. Mm. And I really started to understand just how many people experience a mental health challenge, but do so in silence because of the stigma. It was friends, it was family members, it was business contacts. So right there and then I kind of changed my life, changed direction and became a campaigner and really then looked for a way to contribute to the movement of ultimately creating mentally healthier workplaces and societies where people can put their hand up and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with mental illness and that's okay to talk about it. Yeah, and so, you know, Take me back, because um, you said you got diagnosed at, at thirty. Um, yeah. You know what what was what was life like for you? I mean, did you did you know that something was wrong? Did other people point out to you that something might be wrong? What were you experiencing, and what did that look like? It was really interesting. It took me a long time to know something was wrong. I I knew I was different, um, which I am, and I was, and we all are. Um, but I see the signs of this going back to my um, to my late teens, and I mm. I remember when I was twenty one, when I was at university, and I um, I remember this story vividly, and it was about seven p.m. and I was in my university room on my own, and I was under the covers, and I heard a knock at the door, and when I heard this knock at the door, I froze, and I started my heart started racing, and I started sweating. And Jen, I prayed that I'd lock the door and the people on the other side couldn't come in. It was a fear reaction. And I could hear them saying, he must be in there. He must be in there. And after a while, they went away and I could breathe and relax. But the thing was, it, it was two of my best friends at university coming to pick me up at the agreed time. And I, I could not face them to go out to whatever we'd agreed to go out to. And I, I didn't know why. And it was really weird. And I, I thought I just went through periods of thinking I was antisocial and didn't like people. But then at other times when I'm experiencing things like mania, hypermania that I now know about, I'd be the life and soul of the party, taking my clothes off in public, um, doing silly things. Um, and, and, you know, I thought that was, that was kind of who I was, which in a, in a way it was, but I didn't realize it was a mental health challenge that was affecting mm. my behavior. But as I went through my, my 20s and, and, and just turned 30, I started to spend more and more time not facing going to work and being out of the workplace. On my 30th birthday, I tell the story of all my friends around this big circular table at this Moroccan restaurant and the cake comes out in this big profession procession of singing and dancing presented to the head of the table and it was my best mate because I wasn't there. I was alone in somebody else's flat, not being able to face being out. And there are many, many stories like that and stories of the, the risk-taking um, and the erratic behavior. But I just thought it was me, which again, it was and it is. But I didn't know that I'd got something called a mental illness until I had this amazing boss who said, I think you've got a, I think you could do with some help. I think it would be useful for you to see a, a doctor. And she also researched the numbers of some local therapists and, and encouraged me to call one, which I did. And that was the start of the process to understanding. But I had no idea. I didn't know about mental illness. I didn't think it applied to me. Mm. Well, and I think uh, that, that's many of us, right? Did, yeah. That we don't think it applies to us and, and until it does. Um, yeah. You know, you, you mentioned stigma um, and, and, you know, 
your decision to to share your story. Why why do you think that this stigma exists in society, and quite frankly, why does it still exist? Um, you know, I mean, I know there's a long history, um, but it's also you know perhaps more pervasive in the workplace um, because of the fear that's associated with it. So can can you talk about that also? Yeah, I can. And I think it's a really difficult one because I think the way mental illness has been portrayed over the years with Mm -hmm. mental asylums and mad people um, has meant that that there is a a fear of of mental illness, a fear of people with it and a fear of encountering someone that has got that illness and a fear of getting it. So I think that's, that's one thing. And we've seen how... Um, society has portrayed mental illness and it's changing but I think growing up you know you think of madhouse and um, you know the language around that is can be very offensive to to people with a challenge as well and I think the other the other thing is when we think of the workplace there is a perception of that if you've got a mental health challenge you'll be seen as weak and which is totally not the truth, um, far from it, and, and the reverse. But I think there is a perception, if you start feeling um, depression or anxiety or whatever, whatever the challenge might be, you have to hide that because people might think you can't do your job because you're weak. Now, this is the, this is the stigma that we must smash. And I think part of it is language, part of it is education, part of it is the way we portray mental health, you know? So... In, when I do my keynotes, I often talk about um, a and show a slide that I, I got from Google Images of a, a lady with her head in her hands in a black and white photo. And this was on page one when I Googled mental health. And, mm. you know, that's the sort of image that's coming up. Whereas if we search for physical health, we see vibrancy, we see aspiration, we see fitness. And so there's a kind of brand problem for for mental health as well that we perceive illness. So I think all of those things contribute to to the the stigma, including a lack of knowledge. And it's been really encouraging to see in the last few years that that is changing. But I think you know coming coming up as a you know in the workplace for me, I just didn't think for a second I would talk about this this mental illness that I that I've discovered I'd got when I was thirty. Yeah, and it's um, you know the work that you do and and I'd love for you to um, explain, you know, your form score, because I, you know, I think what you just touched on around, you know, mental health and physical health, um, you know, there are days that we wake up and we don't feel physically well, we're sick. (laughs) And, and, and we don't, think about our mental health in that same way um, or talk about our mental health in that same way. It's not commonplace to say, okay, there are days that we're going to wake up and yes, we all have mental health and there are going to be days that, you know, we are, we're struggling. Does that mean we have a mental illness? Maybe, maybe not, but we are all still susceptible to struggling with our mental health. You know, quite frankly, 
especially now in the middle of a global pandemic and everything else going on in the world, <laughs> probably quite regularly, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, Jen, my favorite, my favorite quote from the pandemic about mental health is 100% of us will know mm -hmm. what it is like to struggle with our mental well-being and our mental health as a result of the pandemic to some degree yeah. or another, whether that's from isolation, from the stress of homeschooling, from worries about the future, worries about the, the economies, whatever it might be, we've all been tested a little bit. And and my hope is that we'll um, ultimately have more empathy for people that do struggle more regularly. But, you know, I, I think we've got to start with the fact that, look, we all have mental health like we have physical health. It is one in one of us that have it. It is one of the most beautiful things about being a human being and the mm -hmm. most complex things. And if we accept that and we accept we sit on a continuum of mental health from struggling through to thriving and everything in between, we can then accept that we can influence it. And this then brings a real power. Uh, it empowers people to think about how to proactively manage their mental health, um, like we do our physical health. And we're getting better at that, right? We know we need to exercise. We know we need to limit sugar. We know we need to um, you know, look after our blood pressure and, and all of that sort of stuff. Get more sleep. Get more sleep, absolutely. <laughs> And do all of that, but we don't have that general level of literacy about our, our mental yeah. health. And and for me, I think part of that is because of the stigma. And you say the words health, you think of illness. So the form score is it's just a simple concept, right? It's a, a way of communicating how you're feeling with a score out of 10. So today I'm a 7 out of 10. And I know that um, what's stopping me being an 8 out of 10 is I didn't sleep as well as I could have done. I haven't been able to exercise because I'm experiencing the challenges of long COVID, which affect my nervous system. But, you know, I've got a good sense of purpose. I balance stress well. I'm eating a nutritious diet. I'm connected to friends and family. So all of these things go into that, that, that number out of 10. But it's a lot easier sometimes to say I'm a, a 5 out of 10 or a 4 out of 10 than it might be to say I'm experiencing depression or anxiety because of this or this. And I think it's trying to provide a new language and a period of self-reflection for people to think actually yeah how am i today where my mental health is concerned yeah and and it reminds me of um you know when when you do go to the doctor for you know if you're in pain you know they tell you they ask you you know on, on a scale of one to ten how painful is it yeah <laughs> right and so it's it's a it's just something that i that is that is comfortable and common and it doesn't require you to come up with the the words or the emotions um which can can be difficult or uncomfortable for people sometimes and so um that's why i like it so much is it yeah. you, know, you, you do you do reflect um and think about it but you don't feel this pressure of you know having to come up with the exact right words or the exact reason why because maybe sometimes you know we just yeah, you're just not feeling with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and you don't always know exactly why. I think maybe over time you become more aware or more astute um, as you start to focus on your own mental health. But you know, sometimes you just sometimes you just don't feel great, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is absolutely okay. And okay. and Jen, you know where I, I see it working really well at the moment is in kind of team meetings mm -hmm. um, and 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 catch ups because. You know, in that forum, it's really unlikely that, particularly if you're working remotely, you're going to say, 
you know, I'm, I'm struggling today with anxiety or um, I'm just having a bad day with my mental health. But you might say I'm a four out of 10. Right. And then the manager can log that, give them a call later and say, hey, I see you're a four out of 10. Is there anything I can do to help? Do you need any support? And it, it, it can just facilitate that conversation because it's less threatening to give a given number. Um, and you're right, that just then helps with that um, building that self-awareness as to what is driving your mental health each day. And and what do you um, you know tell colleagues and and managers? Um, you know, I think some of the common um, fears um, around talking about mental health, even sharing a score. You know, for me as a leader, if I have someone who is um, you know, regularly saying they are a four or a five, and I'm reaching out and wanting to help them and wanting to provide support, but they aren't open to it, right? I think our natural tendency is to want to try to help fix, yeah. um, and you can't fix in all cases. And no. so let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think if you, t- if you speak to um, people that um, are the – you know, the partners, the loved ones of those, you know, like myself with a mental uh, illness and a mental health challenge. I think what what you find is that there's a common theme that actually at some point they realize that it's not about fixing mm-hmm. um, because they can't. They're not, A, they're not professionals and as much as they want to fix, um, they, they sometimes don't have the tools or sometimes the person doesn't doesn't want to be fixed and doesn't need that so the 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 skill then becomes around building up confidence to listen um, and non-judgmental listening but also I think asking the, the the person who's struggling how can I help you what, what what is helpful for you right now because sometimes I think we we believe that we've got to work it all out right um, whereas that person may or may not know, but it might be, well, I just need to be left alone or I just need to have a bit of downtime or actually I need a hug or a virtual hug or whatever it might be. Um, but Jen, I know, and you're very vocal on this, that you're you're a cancer survivor. And the, the analogy for me is if someone turned to me and said, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, what I wouldn't be doing is worrying whether I could diagnose a course of chemotherapy or not. What I'd be saying is, that is really rubbish. I'm really sorry to hear that. What do you need? Can I give you a hug? I'm here for you. But because of the fear of mental illness, we, we don't do that often enough. We we have a tendency to shy away from it. And I think right. this is all about being a little bit more human, and the world needs more humanity right now. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I often make that, that same comparison with, you know, a cancer diagnosis or any really, you know, uh, physical illness we you know we don't typically you know when somebody comes to us and says i've been diagnosed with x and it's a physical illness um you know we we also in the workplace say do what you need to do and don't worry about the work um you know oftentimes because mental health and mental illness are so highly stigmatized but also so misunderstood um you know, we say just power through, you can rest on the weekend, you can take a vacation after the project is over, um, you know, go for a walk, get some fresh air. And while all of those things are, are good on the surface, um, they aren't going to solve 
um, somebody who, you know, they, they aren't going to be, you know, super helpful in the moment for somebody who might really be struggling with a mental illness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's about giving people the literacy to support others from a, a, right. a peer support of you by by equipping them with the knowledge that, look, you know, you're not going to be able to solve this, but that's generally not what a person is going to need. They might need yeah, some motivation and inspiration to go and seek professional help, and you can be the person that is inspiring them to do that. They might need to just know where to look within the firm for the resources or the company for the resources that are available. Um, yeah, so we don't need to worry about whether we can fix people because we shouldn't be trying. We've just got to be there for them. Um, and I think if we can... You know, it, it almost it, it give people that sort of knowledge and confidence to do that, then I think we can support each other a lot better. Yeah. And that, that um, kind of inspires a, a couple more questions. Um, why, why is it so important for business leaders and organizations to make mental health a priority in the workplace? And I think we've talked about a little bit of it, but I know that you have a strong and very poignant point of view on this. So I want to make sure we cover it. Absolutely. Well, I think why should business leaders make mental health and well-being a priority? One, it is absolutely the right thing to do. And people need it right now because people are struggling right now. The, there's a risk of burnout. There's the impact of isolation. Um, people have a general level, and I'm generalizing, but a general level of anxiety around what is going on in the world. So people are struggling, and it is the right thing to do um, to look after what we say in the workplace are our greatest assets, the people that work within the business. Um, so morally, it's the right thing to do. But I think importantly as well, um, and, and importantly for executives that might be tuning into this is actually the business case really backs it up as well because um, Deloitte in the UK did some fantastic analysis on the UK economy around the costs of mental ill health uh, to UK employers and we've got something like 45 billion uh, pounds are the the cost to employers and actually 29 billion of that is due to something called presenteeism which right. are people turning up to work every day but are underperforming because of suboptimal mental health. Now, that's a 29 billion cost, or it's a 29 billion opportunity to, to close that productivity gap. And these numbers will be much bigger now as a result of the pandemic. And furthermore, the return on investment for interventions into mental health and well-being, particularly if you look at preventing people from falling into Ill illness, is between five, eight, and, and upwards to one. So... You've got it's morally the right thing to do. Your people will need it right now. The business case is there. The return on investment any CFO would sign off on. So as a leader, if you're not focusing on this right now, and I'm going to use the words of, of John Flint, the previous CEO of HSBC, why not? And 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 are you truly a leader? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Why not? <laughs> That's why the question yeah. I'm asking. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, Jen, you must be seeing this as well, and, and we're certainly seeing this. I'm seeing it on a global basis, and I'm helping a lot of organizations do it, is that organizations are really getting yeah. on the journey or they're yeah. accelerating the, 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 where they're at down the path of that journey um, because it, it's, it, people need to do it. Yeah, well, and I think there is a um, 
you know, global pandemic or not, um, you know, I think that the global pandemic perhaps in some ways has been an accelerator. Um, but I think even prior to it, I mean, we're, we're there's much more of a recognition that, um, you know, we all have mental health and we also all are affected by mental ill health, whether it's us or a loved one or a colleague. Um, and you know, it, we, we can't, we can't continue to ignore the impacts of that, um, for the individual that is struggling, but for the impact that it has on, on all of us. Um, you know, if, if we love someone that is struggling with their mental health, you know, talking about presenteeism, um, you know, if, if it's, you know, we're not showing up at work, our best either, right? And so it really does have a ripple effect. And I don't think that um, it's wise for anyone or any organization to turn their back on it. So um, let's talk about, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I think you're right. And and, and I just want to add one point that I think is important here. um, And in that the carers, the people caring for people, for loved mm-hmm. ones with a mental health challenge, their voice isn't as loud. That we don't hear, uh, you know, about their plight as much as we do of the the people that are struggling. And um, I'm I always use this opportunity to give a shout out to those people who are caring for people like me who are struggling. And and my wife does an amazing job. And I was really pleased that we got a uh, an article that she, my my wife wrote published that. in one of our. Yeah. It, and and you know we need more voices like that because that resonated with so many people and so many people listening to this will be in that same boat that they're caring for someone wanting to help holding down a job looking after kids whatever it might be and that that becomes an o- a pressure on them as well and they've got to then care for their own well-being to give themselves the resilience capacity to deal with what they've got to deal with so you know it's important we recognize those people absolutely i'm so great i'm so grateful you made that that shout out so uh, let's talk about um inside out and the work that you're doing um and and you know what that looks like in terms of helping organizations really um bring the discussion of mental health to the forefront and and actually in in my own view um you know celebrate it right and breaking down the stigmas in a really um positive and inspiring way yeah, thank you, Jen. So when when I w- was looking for a way to contribute to the movement of ending stigma in the workplace, I, I kind of did a lot of listening in 2017. And I kept hearing the same message from various different stakeholders and conferences. And that, that message was, we do not have enough senior leaders from our workplace who are being open about the fact that they have a mental health challenge. Yeah, we've got lots of sports professionals, we've got entertainers, um, but we don't have enough business leaders. And I thought that was where I could contribute and make a difference. So I formed Inside Out, which is um, a not-for-profit here in the UK, to work on something called the Inside Out Leaderboard, which is a list of business leaders who um, are CEOs or three stages removed or partners and directors in the professions to put their name to a list very simply to say we have a mental health challenge and we're prepared to be open about it and I spoke to a lot of people during those early days and and people saying you'll never get the business leaders to put their name to it the stigma won't allow it and I thought you know I'm going to give this a go and um, I'm pleased to say in that first year we had 42 trailblazing role models who put their name to it 
Um, and it's really important when our leaders do that because, look, anyone that's speaking out about mental illness helps normalise the conversation. But when a workplace leader does so, that accelerates that process of culture change within that organisation much quicker because it gives people permission to also seek help, to also prioritise well-being. Um, and so that first year, it was a, it was a long old process to to kind of find people. We had two partners from Deloitte, but it was across the board: CEOs, banking, finance, property, cross industry sector. And that had a real impact because people hadn't seen that done before with the the levels of um, business leaders sharing their story or sharing the fact they have a story. But for me, you mentioned the word word ripple effect, and I think this is really important because. In the second year, we we started again from zero, and then we published with 69 role models in the UK because more and more people had seen the work we were doing and saying, this is a good idea. I want to put my name to it. Um, And and, yeah, so we've got now 110 in the UK. And as you know, we're doing the same in the US. Now the pandemic Mm -hmm. has slowed it all down, but I know you've agreed kindly to to go on to the leaderboard, which I'm super grateful and thankful for. Um, but we'll be publishing uh, a, a leaderboard in 2021 with US individuals. And we're looking to really build it globally because it's a real, real good way of being able to accelerate that process of destigmatizing and normalizing the conversation because leaders, we look to our leaders, they're role models, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, thinking about our, our listeners who are you know, leaders, colleagues, leaders of any kind, right? Because we can define leader in, in many different ways. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel like I have a story to share. What, what can I do to, you know, create the right culture in my organization and to make sure that it does support mental health and, and well-being, even if I don't have a personal story to share? Yeah, and, and that's a really good question, and and many many people won't have a personal sh- story to share, or or they might not feel comfortable yet doing it, which I completely right. respect as well. Um, but I think if if leaders make mental health and well being a strategic priority for their business, for their teams, um, and make a statement that 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 this is important to the business, and we're going to invest resource and time in creating a culture that is mentally healthy then that's a really good starting point um, because the, the the leader is then given permission to the organisation to do so. And there will be many, many willing advocates and champions who do have a personal story to share within that organisation who then want to take that momentum, grab the ball and run with it um, and, and make change. But I think for a leader to say, as an organisation, we prioritise mental health and well-being, and we're going to put that in a in a policy and a statement. We're going to measure the impact of our initiatives. Um, we're going to report on them, and you know we're going to um, role model healthy behaviours from a well-being point of view in our leadership group, and we're going to give people permission to prioritise their well-being. Um, because ultimately, we do that. People can then seek help when they need to. But I get back to that performance point. We'll have higher performing cultures because in workplaces. Because people can build that resilience capacity like you know, like an elite athlete would by prioritizing sleep, by taking a lunch break, by having those micro breaks in the day, by making sure that they have a balanced life um, with hobbies and sense of purpose. Um, but leaders can give permission to organizations and cultures to do this. 
Yeah, I think that that's really powerful. And I have a, you know, a question and we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, you, you know, that moment when, you know, you shared your story kind of beyond friends and family and those that were close to you. And I think you, you know, some of my story and um, really the, the, the sharing of it <laughs> that kind of came out in a Harvard Business Review article and, yeah. and, you know, my moment of saying, wait, wait, can we call, can we call Harvard Business Review and tell them to take it down? I, I don't <laughs> want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, but then kind of what ensued and the incredible amount of, you know, support and relief and gratitude, which, you know, sounds like you, you've experienced, but in, in your, in your ongoing life, because living with bipolar, it's not something that goes away after you share your story and, and you continue to share. Does that for you, um, you know, help in, you know, in, in, you know, in living with it and, and in what ways? Um, it, it does, Jen, it does. And um, I think there's a few things here, but um, one of the main ones is that when we hide who we are and whatever we're hiding, that creates a burden, it creates a weight, it creates a pressure that we're living with and we're carrying. So for me, first of all, the act of being open allowed that weight to be liberated. And, and I immediately felt lighter. I immediately felt that I could be myself. I didn't have to put physio in my diary. I could put therapy in my diary. And yeah. um, if I was off with um, depression, I could say I'm having a, a, a period of depression rather than faking some sort of injury when I'm the boss of a business. It made no sense. And so... Actually, what I found, and, and a lot of my role models on the leaderboard find this as well, is once I, I could be open and that pressure of being something I wasn't lifted, actually, the instances of my challenge came less frequent. I have mm. less episodes of depression. Now I can be more open. I have less episodes of mania. Now I have more open. And I'm not the only one that says that. I've heard it time and time again. Um, so I think that's one really important point that that being open um, at the right time for an individual can feel very very liberating. But secondly, I think um, I share my story a lot, and I know there's 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 a number of speakers in the kind of mental health um, sphere that that feel they get very fatigued by sharing their story because you do give a lot of yourself, you take yourself back mm -hmm. to the dark times, um, and I understand that. But actually, I feel, particularly on a physical stage when I can connect with people, I really feel like it's, it's free therapy, Jen, because I, I, I come away feeling connected to individuals. Um, I feel like we've, we've had a, a human connection that is meaningful. Um, and, and I feel energized. I really do. And it's, it's a beautiful um, pleasure um, that I can help people with what I'm doing. But I'm also being helped myself as I'm doing it. Um, and I'm super grateful for that. So I think for me, and I hear this a lot as well, I wished I was open earlier mm. in my life. I really do. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, that, that uh, maybe th that should kind of get baked into all of our uh, care plans going forward, right? <laughs> if you're comfortable. <laughs> yeah, if you're comfortable. And I do recognize yeah. that, look, you know, we're not going to smash stigma in a day. Um, it's going right. to take time. And, you know, and, you know, we don't all work um, for organizations that are enlightened and forward thinking. And um, I have heard stories of, of people's careers um, yeah. having an impact negatively. 
but they're very few and far between. So it, it does have to feel right for an individual. But I think most people that have kind of come out and, and, and shared their story do feel that it's been a, a really positive experience and one that they wish they'd have done a little bit earlier in life. Yeah. So um, beyond sharing your story, how else do you take care of your mental health? these days <laughs> well, well so for me jen um you know i, I kind of look at the drivers of, of well-being and the ones that are really important to me and um apologies for the background noise i've got a small elephant that is known as my son <laughs> running around just home from school so <laughs> do excuse that it's all good we're all we're all living that life right now yep um so for me the 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 drivers of well-being um that that are important are um sleep um, so making sure I prioritize sleep, making sure I set myself up for good sleep, turning technology off before bed, um, you know, kind of reading a book, that kind of stuff. That's a big one. Um, exercise generally is my probably number one priority where I, w with what I do to stay well. I'm a big cyclist normally. Um, regrettably, I'm, as mentioned, I'm experiencing the symptoms of long COVID, which really impacts my ability to exercise at the moment. Um, because if I do that, I hit chronic fatigue. Um, so that, that's been a bit of a struggle. So I can do kind of light walks and yoga. And that has really forced me to sort of practice a little bit of what I preach, Jen. Um, so for me, I've had to really employ acceptance an acceptance yeah. that I, I can't be exercising like I normally do. Um, and so trying to kind of realign my goals, be very mindful and in the moment about what I can and can't do, not worry about what I used to be able to do, yeah. and then take a sense of achievement from that small walk or that yoga class. Um, so that, that, that's, that's exercise. But again, for me, really super important and super important for most many people right now, it's, it's connections, it's social connection, human connection. And I think, you know, if I'm not um, properly connected to my friends, my contacts, my family, then I can start to feel my form drop. I see my score drop as a direct result. And I think in the moment with the pandemic and remote working, We've got to work really hard on those connections. We've got to work really hard to find ways to maintain those connections. Um, but for me, you know, conversations like this and the work that we do really boost those connections for me. So it's it's a good one. I couldn't agree more with that. So so you you mentioned your son, um, and if this is off limits, um, please tell me. But for the listeners that are that are maybe wondering or struggling, how do how do we talk to our children about mental health and mental illness it's a really it's a really good question um and you know when i um first started being open publicly uh, about my bipolar and my challenges i realized i needed to kind of be open with with my children and look you know we've been open for a while and and mm. they know that that sometimes daddy is in bed because he's you know he's not feeling well or he's um you know his, his brain's a bit sad or whatever it might be mm. But I remember sitting down with my daughter, um, Gabby, um, when she was age six and having a conversation about mental health. And I've, I've got this, this, this image of the thing she wrote out for me. And she crossed out the letter M and put the letter L above it. And she's more concerned about the health of our lentils, our lentil health. And so we had this conversation. And I said, Gabby, look, how, what would you do if you woke up one day and you were not feeling yourself and you were feeling sad? didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to play, what would you do? And she said, 
I would find someone who I love and I would tell them. I would mm. talk. And, you know, for me, that just drove it home that children don't ha- don't know about stigma. They, the wisdom of a child, right? <laughs> the, wis- the wisdom of a child and something that we, we overcomplicate as, a, as adults. And then I said to her, if you went to school one day and you saw someone sitting off to the side, not playing, looking sad, looking withdrawn, what would you do? And my six-year-old daughter, Jen, looked at me in the eye and said, and she gave me this look like I was just this complete and utter idiot. She said, Daddy, I would go over and I would see if they're okay. I would ask if they're okay. And, you know, that that for me is the big one for the workplace. We often see people, um, particularly when we're in the physical workplace, but even now, where we notice behavior change of our colleagues and we say nothing. Whereas actually saying, how are you today? You're not looking yourself. Just want you to know I'm here for you if you need a chat can go a long way. And ultimately it can save people's lives. Absolutely. Amen to that. And I can't think of a a better way or a better note to end this conversation on. So thank you, Rob, for sharing so much of yourself, um, your, your insights, your, your wisdom, Um, I think it's something that we all need and will continue to benefit from. So thank you again. Thank you, Jen. And thank you so much for having me. And um, for everyone listening, thank you for investing the time in just thinking about how you can prioritize your well-being around the workplace and, and, and in your life. So thanks for that personal investment in time as well. Thank you. I'm so grateful Rob could be with us today to talk about mental health and the workplace. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. Be well.